Welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. Hello, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week's show takes a look at our health. It's often said that prevention is better than cure, but just how do you go about doing that? Do you spend every autumn chomping on vitamin C tablets thinking you'll avoid the flu? Or maybe you monitor your steps on a fitness tracker and assume that just walking to the gym and back is enough without having to actually go in. These are not all based on personal experience. Of course, not everything about your own health is in your control. And at least 75% of our health is determined by social and behavioural factors, like the air around you, the chemicals released from your new sofa, your mental health at work as you think about wishing you were on the new sofa, or a lack of exercise, possibly also caused by the new sofa. Ever wondered why we start with how do we cure breathing difficulties rather than what's causing them and set about solving that thing, the cause? So let's take a look at these root causes and how research into these might just be the cure to some of the biggest health issues we face. And we'll hear about Nesta's idea for the nightingale. That's a research centre named after Florence Nightingale, not the small bird the nightingale that sings at night, as that sort of behaviour won't help anyone. Certainly not those in need of a good night's sleep. Joining us now is Christina Cornwall, who's director of Nesta's Health Lab. She's the co-author of the Nightingale paper that makes the case for research into preventing ill health by tackling the factors that cause it. Hi, Christina. Um, We know a lot about the things that are bad for our health, uh, not exercising, pollution, dieting, all those sorts of things. We could go on forever. What is it that we don't know? Well, as you said in your intro, the surprising thing is we really do know an awful lot about what affects our health. And most people agree that it's actually only about 10 to 25 percent of our health has got anything at all to do with health services. It's actually what's often called the wider determinants or the social determinants of health that really matter. Our um, education, our employment, our social security, our access to good housing, transport, green spaces and our social connections. So actually we know all of these things, but actually we know very little about how best to tackle some of those things to improve health or some of the kind of causal links between them. So is that going to be surprising to people? Because I think a lot of people think, well, I know the few things that I can change in my life to perhaps be healthier or or not do to be healthier to suddenly find out that actually there's a whole lot that we don't understand. That's that's going to be quite shocking, hasn't it? Well, I think so. Um, Recent research from the Health Foundation, actually, um, with the public showed that when you ask people about what they think about health, they generally think about the absence of disease or they think about health services. People don't tend to think about these wider determinants. And I think in general, policy and even public health tends to focus very much on individual behaviour and doesn't recognise this wider factors which actually lead to those behaviours in the first place. So, yes, I think it will be surprising. And we've always a lot of headlines about how a lot of health issues are beyond our control. There's lots of things that we can't actually have a hand in, supposedly. Some genuine headlines that I've got here. Uh, we have UK mother's breast milk has the highest concentration of flame retardants in the world with UN warning babies come pre-polluted. Knives are a public health issue. Pollution warning over car tyre and brake dust. So how do we get into people's heads that maybe there's other ways to tackle it if it feels like it's outside of our control. Yeah, and it's interesting that the crime example you just gave, actually increasingly people are now thinking of that as a public health issue, but that's a relatively new way of framing the problem. I mean, there's there's always, there's good evidence from sort of behaviour change science and so on that you can support people to make changes in their lives. And that's some work we're doing at, at Nesta around reimagining the kind of help that people get. But actually, it's much more complex than that, which is one of the reasons why sort of interventions don't get 
designed and things don't get dealt with because actually they're always multifactorial. There's always things that governments could do to change the policy environment or to regulate in different ways. There's different actors from industry through to, you know, yes, health services, but also employers and schools and others. So as well as then, you know, the role that the public can take as well in terms of some of their own behaviours. So it's, it's very complex. If that's not where the money and sort of focus is at the moment, then where are people doing research? Um, is it all just in curing? Well, the vast majority of it is. So we know that about 10 to 25% of our health is actually influenced by health services, but about 90 to 95% of our public money goes into treatment rather than prevention and a similar proportion um, into biomedical research rather than research into sort of public health. So it's hugely off balance, even though we know the facts about actually what influences health. So what would be the best way to assess the underlying causes of bad health then? Well, as we've said, we actually know an awful lot about the underlying causes. And one of the problems is that this very small percentage of the research budget, which is about four billion, goes into public health. And the majority of the public health research that's happening is a lot of increasingly sophisticated analytical work that's modelling and measuring and re-measuring the problems, showing how things are going in the wrong direction, health inequalities are increasing and so on. But actually, in terms of interventions, the most of the research that's happening is still really limited. It's still looking at very single behaviours, things like smoking cessation and so on, preventable kind of individual behaviours rather than actually looking more systemically at how can we tackle some of these big issues? You know, what would it look like if we trial different approaches to welfare reform, for example, and looked at the impacts in a city? Or how can we rethink the design of our local spaces, our green spaces, in ways that might encourage connection or encourage more activity, might reduce pollution and so on? There's very little interventional research happening that would address some of these public health issues. So things like you should have your five a day or you need to do 10,000 steps or all those sort of things, is that not the right way to go about things? Is that too not a wide enough approach? Well, I think it plays a role, but actually even that isn't often done very well. So I think if you really want to support people to make some of those behaviour changes, you have to look at the evidence which shows you have to really find ways to help people really connect with their own motivation for those things, build their confidence, help them build their capabilities and so on. But actually that will only ever go so far if the environment they live in isn't conducive to that, if the people they spend time with aren't doing those things, if they've got other stresses and strains on their lives, it's going to make it incredibly difficult. So you you have to look at all of the factors that are influencing those behaviours. So I mean, that's quite a big task to look at all of the factors and to change the kind of systematic way in which we look at health. How how should we be doing that? Well, we think in our in our in our argument for this new organisation that we need to completely rethink the research model. That actually we need to bring in um, researchers from a whole range of different disciplines from across. Public health, yes, but also from across the wider social sciences, behavioural sciences. But we also need to think about bringing in practitioners, people who are um, used to doing community development, who are doing human-centred design, who work with digital and data. And we need to work really closely with the communities themselves because 
we find, not surprisingly, that the people most close to the issues are often the ones that have got the best insights about what to do about them. And it actually, they, they all need to come together to think very differently about a problem and think how, how can you tackle some of these things at more of a sort of complex systemic level. There aren't very many examples of this kind of approach as far as we can see. We're, we're involved with a fantastic research programme up in Bradford called Act Early, where they are doing a huge amount of exciting work with data, big longitudinal study they've got, new ways of modelling the data, but also lots of co-production and engagement with communities, lots of use of natural experiments to evaluate things that are already happening and designing new interventions to tackle ways and to improve early childhood health and development. So working with schools, working with the health service, working with communities themselves, which is the best example we've found so far of really trying to model this different way of doing research. So much more action-oriented, much more kind of focus on trying to get rapid insights and lots of engagement with communities and so on. It's very different from the traditional approach. So the Nightingale would be a centre to do all that and more? That's the idea, yeah, that it would help to um, assimilate great findings from places that are already doing these pieces of research, that it would then help to share learning, because we know that there's pockets of great stuff happening at different scales, but actually we're not really sharing that learning. So that would be one job. One would be kind of role modelling this different type of research and maybe working with a few places around the UK to really try and develop some quite big and ambitious experiments to sort of trial different approaches, whether it might be, you know, different benefit systems or, you know, different ways of supporting young people to think about ways of improving mental health or whatever it might look like, and to kind of be a role model for this kind of research to, to work with others. And, and it, could, it could also be a grant giver, actually. So where there are pockets of good stuff happening, different um, research teams wanting to work in different ways, it, it could be potentially giving some grants to do that as well. Right, so just really sort of facilitates yeah. this new approach. We think it needs to be sort of highly networked and quite a kind of porous organisation rather than it being a sort of, you know, an institution with like, you know, firm walls around it. Um, we think it needs to be really open and, and very, you know, highly networked. So working very much with other research teams embedded in communities and places around the country. So at the moment, people are very aware that the NHS doesn't have enough money and there's constant funding issues with the NHS. Is this you know, a good use of the money that the NHS doesn't really have? Well, there's no doubt that the health and care system are struggling for resources and that's not going to go away anytime soon. So, yes, it's important to make sure they get the funding settlement that they need. We've argued in the paper that we think it should be working up to a budget of about £140 million a year, which is still a fraction of the health and care budget. And actually the government's committed to increasing the spend on R&D to sort of 2.4 of GDP. So actually what we're arguing for is a kind of rebalancing of the way that that research money is spent. And the hope would be that longer term, of course, if this is helping people to be healthier and happier, more productive, it's going to have a big impact on the health of the population, but also have wider economic benefits for society as well. From the water we drink to the air that we breathe, there are environmental factors that are beyond our individual control. We're going to hear now from Rosamund Adukissi Deborah. Rosamund is the founder of the Ella Roberta Foundation, set up in memory of her daughter who tragically died from a severe asthma attack aged nine. 
Since then, Rosamond has used her own experience to talk to healthcare professionals and policymakers about what's really needed, as well as highlight how important it is to our health to have clean air and tackle pollution. My name is Rosamond Adwakisi Debra. I am the founder and director of the Ella Roberta Family Foundation. The Ella Roberta Family Foundation raises awareness about the dangers of asthma because asthma is incredibly common in the UK. 1.1 million children have asthma and it's not really taken seriously. And the other thing I also do is educate people about exposure to air pollution because we now know how detrimental exposure to air pollution is on human health. In the UK, a lot of it comes from cars, and especially diesel cars. And what it is, is, is to do with the particulate matter, which are tiny, tiny particles. They're smaller than sand. And what happens is they get lodged, they go through the bloodstream, and they end up clogging people's lungs, which is what happened to my daughter. Also, there's a deadly gas called nitrogen dioxide. And because it's a gas, you can't see it, and everyone is breathing it. I think we set up the foundation initially to try and understand why my daughter suddenly became really, really ill. We wanted the people or the children, especially of Lewisham, to benefit from the foundation because Lewisham has a very, very high asthma rate. And it was also to educate people about the dangers of asthma, which is very, very, very important. In the last 10 years, over 500 young people have died from asthma in the UK, so it's really, really important. This is an ongoing issue. I try and lobby Parliament at the moment because I believe we need a new Clean Air Act because the last one was in 1956. I believe we all have a human right to breathe clean air and I believe that my daughter's right to life was actually breached. So I do many things. I go to Europe. I have spoken at the World Health Organization. I've been invited by the UN to come and speak there. So this is something that, I mean, anywhere and everywhere. I went to the teachers' conference this year because there's an issue with air pollution around schools. I've been to see school nurses because asthma is an ongoing issue and we have one of the worst death rates in all of Europe. So a lot of my things is about working with doctors, politicians, councils, anyone you can think of, the actual mayor of London, so the Ella Roberta Research Award is to do with looking at research to do with asthma. One of the things we hope one day is that nobody will die from asthma. So we promote research because we're only a tiny charity. What we can do is promote it. And there's been a lot of research recently into air pollution and the impact on the national population's health. So it's to encourage people to do more research because the more research that comes out, the more people will get an understanding about this issue. Now, what's worrying about air pollution now is we've realized it contributes to so many ill health, stillbirth, miscarriage, dementia, heart attacks, strokes, 
I could go on and on, even emphysema. And normally you would get emphysema from smoking. There's been research now that shows that air pollution in London is similar to smoking 10 cigarettes daily. It is up to governments and local authorities to maybe do awareness campaigns about it. And are people aware of it? Not really, no. So maybe the government should do like a national campaign about the impacts of air pollution on health. It is a government's duty of care to look after people's health. And it's criminal if they don't do that. What I'd also like to achieve is that nobody will have to suffer and die like my daughter did. Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah from the Ella Roberta Foundation. Air pollution in London is similar to smoking 10 cigarettes a day. Uh, that is quite a shocking statistic. Isn't it? So ahead of this recording, the government has announced that it's going to be launching the Office for Environmental Protection as part of next year's environmental bill. It'd be a regulatory body that will hold the government to account on the development and implementation of environment law and policy. Christina, is that the sort of preventative strategy that we're thinking of? Yes, absolutely. That's that's a fantastic step. And I think what Rosamond demonstrates so brilliantly is just how complex these issues are and how many actors need to be involved. So actually having government action, having the right policy frameworks in place, having the right regulations in place is a really important step. And we've seen with other things, you know, having bans on smoking in public spaces is, is an incredibly important step in terms of improving public health. But it's actually just not quite enough. You need industry to take actions in different ways and push as far as possible. You need schools and health services. Sometimes it's about secondary prevention as well, about picking up the risks very quickly, um, not just primary prevention, which would be tackling the air pollution in the first place. So it's brilliant. But I think the work that they're trying to do to engage and educate the public and to get other parties involved is is critical as well. You mentioned earlier about the importance of involving the community and obviously, unfortunately, uh, Rosamond has got involved because of a tragedy within her family. But that gives you a unique perspective on tackling it, I guess, if you're involved in it. How important is that? Oh, incredibly important. And yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to hear Rosamond talking about all the work she's doing you know, in very tragic circumstances for her personally. We've done lots of work at Nestor over the years um, around patient leadership and, and social movements. And we find it's very often the people most involved with a health issue or a social issue that are the most motivated and the best people to help to bring about the change because they are very often the greatest experts in the particular issue. To discuss that more, we have Lita Wallace, who's a youth worker at The Winch, which is a charity that works with young people in North Camden in London. Hello, Lita. Hiya. Lita, how is The Winch helping young people get their views for solutions across? So I'm lucky enough to work on a project called Take Back the Power, which is just entering into its third year. It was a project that was designed with young people over the course of a couple of years who were wanting to take action, wanting to do social justice work, but not feeling like with all the pressures of school and you know employment that they had the opportunity to take part in civil society. So together we designed a participatory action research project, which is where a group of young people are employed and trained to research and take action on an injustice which affects them. So this year, or the year that's just passed, 
We employed eight young people on the basis that they had lived experience of youth violence. They felt like youth violence had affected their life somehow. And through sharing stories of their own life stories, they kind of spotted trends, thought about what could have happened differently for them and therefore what could happen differently for other young people in the future. So we're having a discussion about health and, and how to prevent health issues. Why is sort of youth violence part of that conversation? So... I'm thinking about an exercise we did called The Wall of Injustice, which started out just as a a storytelling exercise. Um, Young people asked each other really basic questions, you know, like how how do you feel like youth violence has affected you? And we just started to spot all of the different things that were coming up in those stories. So as the exercise went on, we realised that youth violence in itself, the moment where a weapon comes out, is the last instance of a whole multitude of violences or injustices that have happened in those young people's lives up until that point. So things that were coming up were, you know, really negative experiences in the education system, like structural racism, like having family members in prison, having really poor mental health pressure on social media, toxic masculinity, you know, all of these things that are like impounding young people's health and well-being so that at the moment where things get really tense, it can feel like violence is the only option. You know, if you feel systematically excluded from mainstream society, from opportunities to earn money in ways that are really fulfilling and ways that feel useful of your time, if you're feeling constantly like every time you try and engage with society, you're met with a shut door, you end up find your own ways around problem solving. If you don't feel like you have positive ways to manage conflict, if you don't feel like the criminal justice system is there to serve you, you might think about taking justice into your own hands. You know, we've got to really think really carefully about how we engage young people and help them feel like really relevant members of society so that they feel like there's other ways to manage their problems other than violence being the only option. Because we hear a lot about the ways to tackle knife crime and more police, blah, blah, you know, that kind of headline. But actually what you're saying is that's the very end of the story and, you know, potentially too late for a lot of people. We should have been dealing with the, with the system earlier that's causing them to feel this way. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much focus on, you know, the solutions being towards the individual or towards the individuals that are involved. But I think there's the stories, what I learned from these researchers is how this is, you know, the responsibility of a whole society to take action. So, yeah, we can talk about interventions that directly involve young people. And, you know, Take Back the Power came up with 10 solutions that they felt would mean that youth violence didn't happen anymore. Um, The first four are to do with, like, yeah, what can be done for young people who are experiencing or who are at risk of youth violence. But the second six are always that you know, social organisations, public services, other institutions can take to acknowledge their responsibility in tackling youth violence as well. So that might be the education system, you know, not just schools, but Ofsted as well. Um, What about the criminal justice system? What about, like, how do prisons need to change? And how does the criminal justice system need to become focused on rehabilitation rather than about punishment? How do school policies around exclusions impact young people as well? So I think, like, the focus as well needs to come away from how we, like putting all of the blame on young people who are, you know, we we think that young people, anyone who's affected by youth violence, whether they're so-called victims or perpetrators, all young people that are involved in those kind of stories are victims because they're victims of a whole structure that is violent towards young people at, you know, every step of the way. So how are other institutions going to acknowledge their participation in that and their involvement with that and take responsibility and change rather than putting all of the responsibility on young people themselves? 
And what's next for Take Back the Power? You're just heading into your third year. So it's going to be an exciting year for Take Back the Power. At the point where this podcast will be aired, we will have just hired our next eight young people. This year's group will be taking all of the key findings from this year's project and doing whatever they can to bring those um, into reality. Christina, what do you think about this approach? And is this a kind of commonplace way of dealing with an issue like youth violence? Well, it sounds like um, a fantastic programme. There are lots of examples of brilliant programmes and projects like these. I think the challenge is that they're very often being led by very small organisations, very local, often in the community and voluntary sector, often struggling to get the resources to keep the work going and often not supported by the kind of wider research infrastructure. So it's it's seldom that there are papers that are widely accessible, that the insights and the, the learning doesn't always get shared across the country. So there are pockets of brilliant things happening that are either duplicating effort or just not learning from each other and, and able to build on each other's work. So I think that's one of the big issues and one of the reasons why we think there needs to be a national body that can help to join some of the dots together. So what's stopping the joining up happening? What are the hurdles? Is it the way in which these issues are approached? I mean, we've discussed air pollution and youth violence, which you'd think are two quite separate issues, but obviously both have problems at the root causes that could be dealt with. There's a whole mind shift that is needed in the research community to recognise these different types of research that Lita's just been talking about to make sure that funding is flowing to the organisations that have got this expertise in working in these different ways and that then there's connecting the dots so that it can be done at a bigger scale and share learning across the country. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I'm just like silently applauding all of this conversation about (laughs) Nightingale. But yeah, for me, it's just like these projects, not only do they bring training and yeah, deep expertise because they're involving people who are like living this, you know, whatever issue it is, living it in the everyday. But projects like Take Back the Power, they're bringing, we, because we employ the researchers, we, we believe that if, you know, if people are doing research, doing the work, they are as much worthy of being paid as any other forms of researchers. So not only are we deepening our knowledge and taking action, but we're also providing employment opportunities that are directly themselves addressing the issues that we're talking about. So challenging systemic inequality, like bringing young people into professions that they might not always have access to and, you know, bringing home money so that they can be making a contribution at home, so tackling poverty at the same time. Do you think by having people involved at that sort of level, it encourages others to get involved? You know, it kind of creates that kind of positive message that this is about you and we are listening to you. Oh, yeah, or it should be like it's about us, you know, and I think... This way round of doing research is about, yeah, science and the infrastructure of research backing people rather than, you know, asking people to get involved in something that might not in any way feel recognisable or achievable or relevant. I think, like, what you were saying before about it being embedded in the community, I think it needs to be an organisation that has really good relationships with existing organisations and finding ways to bring all of their expertise to back work that's already being done and building on the expertise that is rich in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And actually even deciding what the research should even be with communities, because very often it's decided by academics who've got a particular interest and that's how research is prioritised and and topics are selected. But actually the engagement should start right at the very beginning. It should be helping to think through 
what are the challenges that the community wants to tackle? What should the priorities be for research? Actually then coming up with solutions locally that they want to test and thinking about different ways of evaluating that that feels much truer to the community. Yeah, so I think we said before like how are air pollution and youth violence linked, but it's about inequality. It's about not having the opportunity to change your environment. And I think these kind of projects putting like expertise and power at the hands of people who are living it every day, we're really going to get those rich insights and really going to see the change that we need to see. That's brilliant. So, Christina, where next for the Nightingale project? Well, we've got a job ahead of us to try and see if we can get some more support for the idea. So we want to have more conversations with different departments across government because we think this is more than just an issue for the Department of Health. This this affects all government departments um, and also across the research councils to see if we can build a coalition of different funding bodies and policy influencers that can help back behind this idea and see if we can make it happen. And we also want to do some more work to really scope out What could this organisation look like? How does it need to be structured? How can it be kind of meaningfully networked with other organisations and communities across the country and start to do a bit more of a detailed scoping exercise? And for all you future curious listeners uh, and anyone else out there, you can find out more about the Nightingale project at nesta.org.uk slash report slash nightingale. And we also want to give a plug for the new podcast from Lita's organisation, The Winch. In this pod, you can hear from young people affected by youth violence and their views on what needs to change. You can find all the details about that on their Twitter at Take Back Tea Power, and we'll post all the links in the podcast blurb too. Preventative rather than reactive strategies. That's what it's all about. And of course, one way you can ensure you don't suffer a lack of this podcast is by subscribing and liking the show on whichever app you use. You're welcome. And from preventions to predictions, next week we're bringing you Nesta's predictions for 2020. Will it be that everyone will have perfect vision or just that everyone will be making that awful joke all year round? Probably neither, but you'll have to wait and hear. What do you think about the Nightingale plan? Or maybe you have some predictions for next year. Whatever you want to tell us, we're keen to listen. As you've heard many times on this show, it's how the best innovations are made. So get in touch at futurecurious at nesta.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Future Curious from Nesta, bringing bold ideas to life and straight into your ears. Listener.